Welcome to I'm Fine, You, brought to you by Maybelline New York, where we are normalizing the conversation around anxiety, depression, and mental health. Now here's your host, Chrissy Rutherford. Welcome back to I'm Fine, You, presented by Maybelline New York. Maybelline's Brave Together initiative is dedicated to breaking the stigma around anxiety and depression while addressing challenges and providing resources to those in need. Hi, I'm Chrissy Rutherford, and on this podcast, we're channeling this mission into real-life conversations to help normalize the topic of mental health and provide tangible resources and guidance for anyone who needs a mental health boost. To provide mental health resources, Maybelline New York will make a monetary donation to mental health organizations in conjunction with each episode. Today, I am speaking with author, poet, comedian, and speaker, Alok. They join us today to discuss the stigma that can affect the LGBTQIA community and how to approach talking about tough issues for individuals and society at large. Welcome, Alok. How are you? I'm doing okay. How about you? I'm good. So you are not only an internationally acclaimed gender non-conforming performance artist, but also a media personality and public speaker. And I feel like I must say a style star to boot. Can you tell us a little bit about the work you do day to day? Yeah, I'm just trying to be beautiful in a world that's committed to being boring. (laughs) And what that looks like is that I try my best to interrupt everything that I do and foreground vulnerability, personality, complexity, excitement, joy. And I just follow where my charm leads me. So it's always been less about caring about which industry I'm in or which label or which category and more about what brings me joy. That is an incredible mission. So as an internationally recognized artist, your work is seen by a lot of people. What is your goal when creating a concept or a piece? Hmm. I'm just trying to be honest to what I felt in the moment that I'm creating it. My hope is that if it's a poem, if it's an outfit, if it's a book, it does justice to that moment. Mm -hmm. I understand art artistry is making a monument to a moment. And that's heartbreaking and exhilarating heartbreaking because moments shift so i look at things that i made a few years ago and i'm like oh my gosh i'm totally not that person exhilarating because oh my gosh i'm totally not that I, that person that were in constant shift and flux and change and that's precisely what it means to be alive and that's beautiful and so i think art making for me has always allowed me to track my growth and how I'm constantly outgrowing the stories that I tell about myself. I love that. And you can really track your evolution by the pieces that you make and create. How can art help people feel heard? I guess I would go so far as to say art is one of the primary ways that we can be witnessed. And I I, I should say caveat here, I don't believe that there are artists as like a group of people. I think all of us are artists. Like, so if we were to say artists, then I mean like billions of us, artistry is a muscle that we all have. It's just unfortunate that we live in a world that often teaches people not to flex it, not to exercise their imagination. And 
what I really love about beauty and fashion is that they're everyday acts of artistry that the masses can practice and do practice. There's a sense of creative self-expression that's possible and how you author your own image that I often think doesn't get uplifted as art, but it is art. Right. It's everyday, wearable, immediate art. And what art teaches us is that there's no actual pre-existent template. You get to make it up and you get to show people what you are and feel and they get to interpret it. And that's so liberating because I think so much of the lessons emotionally that we receive in the society is you have to contour yourself and confirm other people's pre-existent template. You have to be like other people, have a reference point in order to be seen. Oh, yeah. Whereas in art, it's just like kind of the anarchist freedom of being like, I'm, I'm just going to make it up as I go. And I think that that's exhilarating because then you're actually being witnessed on your own terms. So much of what I see the harm of like well-meaning people who want to get to know people across difference is they only will allow different people to narrate themselves in the same way as them. <laughs> and that defeats the entire purpose of difference. Yeah. So like oftentimes I hear people say, yeah, I just really want to support my trans brothers and sisters. And I'm just rolling my eyes because I'm like, if you really understood what it meant to support trans people, you wouldn't say brothers and sisters. We don't have to confirm your ideas of the gender binary in order to be real. And so what I notice is a lot of times people will look at me, but they won't listen to me or they'll consume an image of me, but they won't actually think about what that means for them. And so what my art allows me to do is to say, you have to meet me at all of my points. It's not enough to just consume me. I want you to experience me. I totally understand that. And I like what you said in the beginning about all of us being artists, because I completely agree with that. And I think when you think back to like who we are as children, like all children create art, like that's that all lives within us. And it's only as we get older that it dissipates and that we feel like we're, we can't create or we can't really like live our lives in the in such a free way that we felt as when we were children. I think as a general rule, this idea of maturity that we have in our culture is so awkward. <laughs> like <laughs> maturity is offered to us as like denying your emotions, repressing yourself, playing pretend, lying. <laughs> Literally. And calling that like growing up mm -hmm. when I actually think growing up is being able to be in touch with what you feel and being able to communicate and emotionally express yourself. Like what if we called it maturity, people who were vulnerable in public? What if we called it maturity, people who are really good at holding conflict? What if we called it maturity, people who could communicate an emotion? Those are the things we should be venerating in our culture as growing up, not like self-sabotaging. Absolutely. Oh, what a brilliant point. And so oftentimes creatives have shared how art has helped them cope with difficult situations or times in their lives that, you know, may have caused them anxiety or depression. Have you experienced that firsthand and how has having the creative outlets that you use help you manage your feelings in the past? Yeah, I'm my astrological sign is cancer. So Chances are. <gasps> I'm a Pisces. Mm, you understand? Yes, I do. Water sign gang. I feel very deeply. 
I feel very, very, very deeply. If I'm happy, I'm extremely happy. If I'm sad, I'm just very sad. I feel it all. Yeah. And if I didn't have art, I just do not think I would be able to function whatsoever because I need somewhere to work through those emotions. Otherwise, it's just so overwhelming and all and all consuming. And so my art has always been part of my mental health practice. I first started writing poems when I was a really depressed kid in a small town in Texas. And it was the place that I could put my pain outside of my body so that I didn't have to keep it in myself. And then art allowed me to connect with people who said, hey, I'm sorry what you're going through. No one should have to go through that. And I was like, wait, what do you mean? I don't have to go through this. And then art gave me hope. Yeah. And so that's still that kind of 20 years later, that's the still framework I use for my art is like, I shouldn't have to hold this in myself. I want to put it in something and I want to make pain into something beautiful and transformative. And so I see the work of art as kind of like a kind of alchemy or emotional alchemy, taking like vitriol and negativity and actually transforming it into something that's beautiful and precious. I love that you're a cancer. I'm like a true creative, us water signs. Mm-hmm. And aside from expressing themselves creatively, what is your advice to those experiencing similar feelings that you have? Yeah, I really feel like friendship is a is the super strength that we have all been wanting forever. Mm-hmm. You know, there's all those questions you get when you're a kid, like if you could have one superpower, what would it be? And it always like to be able to like walk on water or like fly or whatever, but I really want to actually say that like friendship is a superpower we should all be aspiring toward because if we have friends, then most of the crises in the world are actually addressable because friends have the skill set that we might not. Like I see the world as kind of like navigating a video game where we all just are like <laughs> our own merit main character in the video game and we have our talents and our skills and then we just like are really awful at other things. <laughs> And what a friend is, is like, hey, I need to install this AC unit in my window. Me and power tools do not, we do not converge in any Venn diagram. (laughs) Can can you be that person? But then if we were to take that to the next level emotionally, hey, I'm really struggling right now with a lot of grief and I just need someone that I can cry with. Can you be that person? Mm -hmm. Friendship allows us to actually have a container and a laboratory to be needy of each other and to show up with reciprocity. And so in my own life, struggling with anxiety and depression, it's been my friendships who continually help keep me buoyant. It's a grounding ritual for me. Before I was able to really believe in and trust and love myself, I had my friends championing me. And because I love them, I was like, oh, wait, if the people that I love, love me, then should I love me too? (laughs) Right. The power of friendship It's so important, I think, especially when we're struggling and having those people that we know that we can always go to is just, you know, always so invaluable. And so now you are the author of Beyond the Gender Binary, a clarion call for a new approach to gender in the 21st century. Can you tell us a little bit about the message behind that book? Totally. So we live in a strange society that takes billions of complex souls and then tells them that they have to pick one, man or woman. We would never do that with color. If we said you only can have two colors, people would be like, what are you talking about? The world is so much beautiful with so many colors. We don't do that with flowers. We don't do that with all the different animals. 
we've learned in school that diversity of our ecosystem is necessary for the survival of our species in the world. But when it comes to humans, we've somehow normalized that diversity is something bad that is actually detracting away and that we should all just be the same. And that's what keeps us strong. That's wrong. I believe that gender diversity is fundamental for the future of this world. And what gender diversity is, is instead of saying, hey, here's what it means to be a man or a woman, we ask people, what does it mean to you to be a man or a woman? A lot of times when people hear beyond the gender binary, they think that non-binary people like me want everyone to be (laughs) non-binary, that you're no longer allowed to be a man or a woman. And that couldn't be farther from the truth. What we're actually fighting for is your right to choose to be a man or a woman. You get to determine that yourself or to be whatever you want to be. What we're fighting for is for people to be able to self-narrate their own identities rather than having other people assume where they go. And that's why World Beyond the Gender Binary actually helps everyone, not just trans and non-binary people, because gender stereotypes are actually holding us all back. We still live in a world that instead of congratulating women for their accomplishments professionally, asks, so when are you getting married? Yep. People still live in a world that doesn't allow men to actually express feelings in public without being seen as feminine or weak. We're all hold to these arcane ideas of what it means to be a man or woman. But if we move beyond the gender binary, we separate gender from norms and we allow people to actually just be fully complex human beings. Absolutely. And I know this is a very big question, but why do you think there is still such a stigma today in society around people feeling like they can't always be themselves? And similarly, how do you think that stigma affects their emotional well-being? I think a lot of it actually has to do with trauma. And that's always why I believe mental health is the most important conversation to be having all the time, because so many of our contemporary human rights issues can be linked back to people's mental health. And the truth is, many people grow up in families that tell them that they have to disappear themselves and conform in order to be worthy of love. They're taught that they can't be curious Or they can be curious until a certain point, and then you have to stifle that, and you have to be exactly the image that your parents want you to be. Otherwise, you're not going to be worthy of love. And as a young person, our parents are, are everything. And so that validation matters so much. So at a very young age, our brains are receiving a message that says validation equals love. And there's no message there that's like, hey, who do you want to (laughs) be? What do you want to do? How do you want to express yourself? That's seen as rebellion against the family unit and against love. And so when people see trans and non-binary people expressing ourselves in our own terms, going against the grain, taking our life and our body into our own hands, they're asking themselves, wait, what do you mean we get to do that? You mean we get to like still be loved and be different? (laughs) You mean we get to express ourselves? And it's easier to demonize us than it is to feel your own heartbreak. So what I see a lot of contemporary homophobia and transphobia as is people's own grief that has now become rage and resentment, but it actually belongs to them. And that's why one of the things I really want to tell LGBTQ people who are listening is it's really important to separate other people's projection from your reality. Absolutely. And you just have to be like, this actually has nothing to do with me. Love and good lighting to you. Notice how I say good lighting, not light, because that's one of the biggest issues facing our time is harsh lighting. (laughs) 
So <laughs> love and good lighting to you. And I wish you all the best, but this actually, it doesn't have anything to do with me. And that makes me think about some posts of yours that I've seen on your Instagram that I just am always really moved by because when people write quite hurtful things on your Instagram page, you will write them the most compassionate response I've ever seen. And you share that with people like, where do you even find that compassion Mm. for these people? I think it begins at home. I used to be very self-hating. I mean, all the cruel things that people say to me, I've said to myself tenfold. And when I look at my life, I'm like, how did I go from that, from being so deeply self-hating and self-deleting to now being so loud and flamboyant and free? The way that I made that was that people cared for me and they loved me. It wasn't people shaming me. It wasn't people telling me that I was wrong or bad. It was by people believing me and rooting in me. And so now that I've seen how care changes people and people are careful with me, I was able to live my best truth. I want to extend that to other people because I believe in transformation. And I think transformation is so possible. People can go from being extremely transphobic to being trans themselves. So that just shows us that it's not about ignorance, actually. It's about love. I just think a lot of people haven't experienced love. And I've been reflecting on this recently because... I I recently lost my aunt, who was a really empowering force in my life. She was an out and proud lesbian. And as a young person, I had someone who was part of the community to protect me and to love me and to make me feel like I didn't have to erase myself to be worthy of love. Mm -hmm. And now I understand how having her and her ability to love me as a queer person gave me so much confidence and strength. I feel really compelled to be that kind of auntie to the world that she was to me. And what auntie love was for me was because she wasn't my direct parent, she was the one who could just kind of not have to be the disciplinarian. Right, of course. And just kind of like give me like all the best Christmas gifts and like always be the person that I called to when I needed advice and just believed in me so hard. And I kind of just feel like my life and career goals are to be a good auntie. Mm -hmm. And I just want to be that for other people. I love that. And those social media posts of yours, they make me want to be a better person because I like to consider myself a compassionate person. But when someone is coming at me sideways, I'm going to return that same energy. (laughs) (laughs) What is your advice on how an ally can support a friend or loved one to ensure their voice is heard and validate their feelings? Mm -hmm. I think listening is one of the most difficult things that we can do. Because we always want to interpret, to analyze, and to offer advice. And most of the time, advice is actually just our own stuff, not the other person. Yep. It's actually kind of selfish because we're being like, well, what I would do. Well, you're not that person. Yeah. And what most people are actually asking for is just someone to witness them as they can workshop what they want to do. So being a platform for other people to just share without having to be like interpreted, I think is really powerful. And we have to suspend our need to judge and suspend our need to tell people what they should do. And instead help ask people like, hey, like, what are you thinking you should do and and give feedback in that way that's generative. 
I think it's taken me a long time to be able to realize this. I used to take other people's advice as like the word of law. Like <laughs> I literally couldn't purchase like a winter coat without texting a photo to 25 people being like, <laughs> what do you think? Is this going to be warm enough? Is this cute? Like what's a, like I just doubted my own kind of ability to make decisions in my own life. And the way that I actually came to have more confidence in my decision-making skills is when I actually had active listeners who created the fertile ground for me to actually come up with what I actually felt about something. I think so often we know what we need. It's just that we need a place to like get out our feelings and our thoughts about it. And then we get clarity in that encounter. Yeah. I always try to take that approach now. Like when a friend comes to me with a problem, I'm like, do you want me to listen or do you want my feedback? I think that's, you know, always a really great approach to take because as you said, like most of the time people just really want a sounding board. Like they just want someone to see them. Mm. How can people create an open, supportive and safe dialogue within their communities or families to give someone the space to be themselves? Well, the truth is that currently most families are opposed to people being themselves. (laughs) So we have to start from there, which is that oftentimes we've been taught that what love is, is passing on the legacy of trauma in a family. And it's like, oh, because I suffered, you have to suffer too. Because I was like this, you have to do this too. So often we're just trying to make people into our own image. And I just want to just casually and compassionately remind people that that's not love. Love is actually giving permission to people to live their own life and outgrow you. And that we often are taught as like, it's going to ruin a connection. I think that the intentions are really sincere. We want to ensure that we're strong and that we're connected and that we have shared experience, but forcing people into shared experience doesn't actually create safety or strength. It creates an illusion of fake safety and fake strength. So I think it actually really looks like each person in the family unit always asking ourselves, do I love this person for who they are in my life? Or do I love this person for who they are in their life? Yeah. Do I love this person because I can use them? Or do I love this person even when they don't have use for me or I have use for them? And really trying to check ourselves on our own bluff. Because I think in family units, we often really just like default into roles mom, son, aunt, when in fact, we're human beings who are complex and have so much other stuff going on. So I think the way that we can really create those kind of environments is by modeling it for one another. So what I realized in my life is I would always go home and I would be introducing all this language around mental health and boundaries, which to my immigrant family didn't make sense to them at all. They're like, boundaries, what's that? Like, we feel like we own each other. (laughs) But then I realized like, okay, they're not going to listen if I'm lecturing them. So I'm just going to live these values. And then now I see that it's being transmitted just by them watching by my example. So it's one thing to say, hey, I really need to have boundaries. And it's the other to say at the family reunion, I booked a hotel for myself. Because what that communicates, there you go, is the boundaries are already made. (laughs) I'm not even going to like have this conversation with you to be like, I need to be able to tap in and tap out. I'm going to build that in for myself. And you're going to see how I'm showing up in this space. And there are going to be lessons that are delivered based off of how I'm showing up and what I'm tolerating and what I'm not. And so this is now my new theory of change is being a lighthouse. Mm -hmm. People change when they can see the light and be oriented towards it. 
The lighthouse doesn't beg for people to come. The lighthouse isn't like, hey, it would be amazing. People have to make the decision to heed the light, right? Yep. And so when it comes to my family unit out, I'm modeling boundaries. I'm modeling open and frank conversations around mental health. I'm modeling what it means to be creatively expressing yourself. And it takes a long time. Like, I don't want to romanticize this. It takes a long time. But increasingly, my parents are now the ones who are like, hey, you need to invite your third cousin to your show whenever you're touring in Atlanta. And I'm like, oh, that's your way of saying that you're proud of me and that you want our family to get a little bit of the magic that I brought to you. I mean, yeah. Practicing boundaries with the family is very, very tricky. I'm also the child of immigrant parents, so I feel you on that one. So now your work challenges the spectrum, obviously, of gender, politics, and fashion. How do these three things really intersect for you? Yeah, we live in a world that divides makeup products, beauty products, fashion into men's and women's. And that's seen as natural. But what I want people to understand is that's political. That was a choice made by people with power. So historically, actually, a lot of what we consider to be feminine, makeup, leggings, heels, wigs, were actually worn by people of all genders. But then there was an elaborate effort in the 19th century to associate women with makeup and beauty and fashion and men not with these things, even if they were using those products, but just to invisibilize it so that men could be seen as rational and leaderly, whereas women were just seen as ridiculous and commercial and selfish. So this was a political choice and we can change it because it's been changed in the past. I mean, I grew up with men wearing skirts and that wasn't seen as something feminine. That was just what we wore. That was our outfit. So when people tell me that a skirt is feminine, I'm like, whose perspective are you reinforcing here? Because there are millions of black and brown men across the world who are wearing skirts right now. And that's not seen as something feminine at all. Yeah. So what I'm really trying to do with my work is to teach people that inanimate objects don't have genders, which is wild that I have to like say that. That people are so firmly committed to the idea, like, <laughs> if you're wearing nail polish, you must be a whoop. Like, it's as if when you paint your fingernails with nail polish, your fingers will melt off if you're a man. <laughs> like, that's how they speak about it. That, like, physiologically, you cannot, like, eh. it's absurd how much time, money, and effort we put in trying to make gender norms happen. They just are not. So, what I want to ask the world is, what if... We took all the time, money, energy, resources away from trying to revive these Victorian era gender norms and instead just address some of the biggest issues facing our times. Right now, people are more upset about a man wearing a dress, quote unquote, than they are about rising inequality, than they are about climate change, than they are about so many issues that are affecting millions of people. It's a false issue that doesn't, that shouldn't be one. So my hope is that we can get a beauty and fashion industry, which is gender free, and where people have permission to determine what products mean for them, instead of brands saying, this is for men, or this is for women, we ask audiences, and we ask clients, how are you interpreting these products? Notice here, how I'm echoing the same language that I spoke about with love and the family, right? It's the same thing. It's about giving people license and autonomy to live their own lives rather than telling them what they should be. Yeah, I know. And it feels so frustrating that in the year 2022, like we still are trying to box everyone and 
as you said, inanimate objects into, you know, all these little categories. I'm like, at this point, like, you know, when do we get to the point where we really allow people to express themselves in the full range of which they see fit or how they choose? That is the question, right? And how exactly do you use fashion as a tool to express yourself? I stopped caring about what society thinks of as men's clothes or women's clothes. And I started thinking about fashion. And here's the thing. Gender norms are unfashionable. (laughs) And I was just committed to being glamorous. So if that means that I have to shop in both sides of the store, I will. Because I just want to secure the look, right? I want to look good. Right. And so I just feel like it's so silly how I'm having to argue for something that will actually make the world more beautiful. And then you begin to wonder, oh, wait, maybe we just have competing definitions of beauty here. Most people think beauty is looking like people with power. I think beauty is looking like yourself. So I think that's the fundamental tension is that I think that there's no one way to be beautiful. I think we're each our own kind of beautiful. And in that way, there's billions of beauty. And what I love about being in this industry is I can ask people, show me what beauty means to you. And I can learn another way of being beautiful. And that doesn't threaten my concept of beauty, but their concept of beauty is so insecure and fragile that it has to disappear all other beauties. It has to say, we're not going to create foundation in darker skin tones. We're going to only allow our products to be consumed by women. Are you kidding me? Like beauty is not a, like a gate kept community. No. We should want everyone to be part of it and be a part of this world. And so through fashion, I'm able to really challenge what people have been taught is beautiful. I'm able to challenge how people dress in such restrictive ways. What if we were to get dressed because we just wanted to feel good, not because we wanted to confirm other people's ideas of stereotypes? Absolutely. And last question, what kind of changes would you like to see from a federal level in terms of making people feel safe and accepted? I mean, so much. We still don't have anti-LGBTQ discrimination legislation at a federal level in this country. So, so many LGBTQ people are still being fired from their jobs for expressing who they are. And that's unacceptable. We really need to have protections for our LGBTQ workers. Completely. Historically, beauty and entertainment industries have been safer havens for LGBTQ talent. But I want all LGBTQ people to be able to do whatever career they want to do without feeling like they can't present as themselves or dress in what they want to wear or look like they want to wear in order to do their job. So we have to challenge this idea that our appearance is somehow linked to our worthiness at our job. And then what we really need is stronger federal stances to address the local and state anti-LGBTQ laws that are being passed. So right now, at the time of this conversation, and unfortunately, I'm sure when it's out, there'll be more, there are over 280 pieces of anti-LGBTQ legislation that are being introduced and in some case passed at the state level. This is the worst ever year for civil rights for the LGBTQ community. And we have seen a really slow response at the federal level. We need to ensure that this doesn't happen. This is against the law and it's unconstitutional. So I'd like to see more federal stances on behalf of the LGBTQ community to say, Oklahoma, Texas, Wyoming, Idaho, you can't do this. This is not all right. This is not the principles of democracy that we've been set on. And then I think the third thing I'd really like to see is a federal effort to address the escalating violence against the trans community. 
2021 was the highest rates of murder against trans people. And we're talking specifically here about black trans women. And we've seen no re- no real federal prioritization of this. What that could look like is actually creating affordable housing for trans communities, affordable health care for trans communities. What that actually looks like is much more public education around trans issues. There's so many things that we can do that would actually curb this escalating violence. And it feels once again in 2022, so weird that we have to be saying, hey, people shouldn't be murdered for who they are. Like, why is that political or controversial? Why is it that when people think about LGBT issues, they're thinking first about, oh, these people want special rights, when in fact, what we're actually arguing for is for people to be able to live without fear of violence. That's where we're still operating from. Imagine that. But it's almost as if there's so many people who just feel like as humans, we're not allowed to evolve. We shouldn't change. We shouldn't stretch the like imposed limits of what society expects from us and we're stuck in this like gridlock it's really frustrating alok thank you so much for being here with me today this was an incredible conversation and i really appreciate all your insight and your advice thanks so much for having me talk to you soon that's all the time we have for today. I want to say thank you so much to Alok for joining us today to discuss their work and the stigma that can affect the LGBTQIA plus community. On this show, we're here to provide access to mental health resources and support those who need it most. Make sure you're subscribed to I'm Fine, You. And if you're enjoying the show, leave us a review and tell us what you like. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Chrissy Rutherford, and this has been I'm Fine, You, presented by Maybelline, New York.